Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Baby, baby. Welcome, everybody, to this week's B-Side of Dead Planet Society. This is an extension of the A-Side that we ran earlier this week. Joining me on air, as before, is my brilliant co-host, Amy Therese. Amy, say hello to the masses. Hi, patrons. You are not the masses. You are the brethren. You are within the fold, within the church, if you will. Fellow church members, uh, welcome our guest, who is back for the B-Side, Benjamin Studebaker. Benjamin, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Guess who's back? Back, back again. Early. Okay, no, we're not doing that. No, we're not doing that. Uh, Benjamin is a PhD student in politics at the University of Cambridge, where he studies political theory. He also runs an excellent blog, which is going to be far more topical to our discussion for this B-side. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the meaning of politics the, we're going to continue our discussion about uh, the strategic orientation of democratic socialism, and we're going to be talking explicitly about the left. This is an insider's conversation. We're talking about the left as a church, and more specifically, actually, to be clear, the left is not a church. Uh, so what is the left? What is politics? And how do we, how do, we do this? How do we politic? Benjamin Studebaker is going to, is going to give us a, a little uh, advice on that. I think it's all good stuff. So if you're listening to this and you are not a patron, you're only going to get a little tease, just just enough to wet your whistle and get you uh, panting for more. So uh, if you like what you hear and you want to hear the whole B-side, head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a member of this society. Not only will you get access to the entire B-side that you're about to hear, but you will get access to our entire back catalog of B-sides and you'll support the New Left Agenda. A lot of good stuff there. You're not going to want to miss out. So, yeah. So, uh, let's see. So, it was late April, Benjamin. You wrote a piece that turned into a series uh, that appeared on your blog. This is how I first really came into contact with you. And the title of that blog piece was, The Left is Not a Church. So, a couple of months have gone by. In political time, it seems like a decade. You might even argue that the entire political junk conjuncture has shifted uh, following these massive electoral successes that we've seen. Uh, so, so, take us back. Uh, what, what were the conditions that you were responding to in that piece? What was the kind of general thesis? Uh, and and uh, who, who were your inter- interlocutors there? Well, we'll just begin to sort of unpack that uh, just to get things going. Yeah, so I had, I had this kind of burgeoning concern that the left was not going to succeed in what I thought ought to be its strategic aim, which is capturing the Democratic Party insofar as that's possible. And I I became concerned that the left had had gotten back into that pre-Bernie Sanders thing where it endlessly debates with itself and it gets into these niche positions which it can't explain to anybody who isn't already an admitted member. And it focuses on who's left enough Who's good enough? Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Let's blame and shame. Let's call out. Let's have a go at everybody who isn't one of the elect. And I heard a story from somebody out in the Bay Area about a DSA leadership election between these two slates, uh, Bread and Roses and Unity and Power. And Bread and Roses was running much more, I I would say, almost a Bernie-crat 
campaign more focused around single payer and right. pushing for single payer. I think they were principled social, uh, principled democratic socialists. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Shout out to Bread and Roses, some uh, friends of the show. We're, we're going to be a little bit uh, obviously partial to those folks. Yeah. So anyway, sorry for jumping in. Go ahead. Yeah, and when I say Bernie Cred, I don't mean not socialist because I think that right. Bernie is a socialist. Yeah, yeah, that has a different connotation when it comes out of your mouth versus <laughs> other people on the left, perhaps. I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, 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 for sure. And so their opponents, Unity and Power, were critical of them for not um, – they, they suspected, I think, that Bread and Roses didn't really care about the DSA position of abolishing the police. I think that was a big concern for them. And they also I, – I think they didn't think that Bread and Roses were focused enough around identity issues, issues to do with – people of color, race, gender, et cetera. And they, I, I heard some horrible stories about how they got into some internal communications that people in uh, Bread and Roses were having and leaked material, which was meant to be private, to make Bread and Roses look ableist or look all, all the various different ists. And then they, you know, they went around bullying on the internet, various people, in bread and roses. And I just thought it was such a counterproductive thing and, and such an ugly thing. And how can the left possibly win when it's treating people who are meant to be its, you know, yeah, sure, there were some political differences between bread and roses and unity and power, but these are meant to be people who can work together, people who are different slates within the same organization. And they treat each other in such a horrible way and have a debate that is so acerbic and so full of hatred, how can anyone who's outside the lab, who looks at this, who comes into contact with it, want anything to do with it at all? And it struck me as so politically counterproductive that I had to write a piece about it. And then that piece happened to get around a little bit in some of the Bay Area left-wing circles. And it seems to have made some kind of positive contribution. Right. I mean, they, I think it's clear that they, they Bread and Roses was more uh, popular with uh, the members who actually have a vote than, than the national debate would seem to, you know, as, as usual, the Twitter sphere operates as more of a, you know, obfuscating lens than a clarifying one. And uh, oftentimes the people who, who, who scream the loudest online are not the ones who actually have a power and legitimacy inside the organizations themselves. And this, this was one of those cases uh, where Bread and Rose's leadership had really proved itself in practice. And so the slanders didn't really gain any traction, I think. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to harp on that. There's friends of the show and patrons who were involved in that, and I'm not going to name them. And really at this point, there's no point in talking even more specifically about that. It's old news. Uh, we are at a brand new conjuncture, I think, as a socialist movement, particularly and, and, and as, as a, a DSA, as an organization. So there's no, no sense in really, um, we're not trying to rehash or reprise the, the, those, those specific stakes of those debates, but it's a good illustrative case, I think, to make this point about the meaning of politics and, 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 and moreover, like what the role of left organizations should be and how we orient to them in order to orient outward and, and, and when, it, when something that looks like a transition to socialism. Um, so, yeah, with that little caveat. The other thing that I think is worth remembering is that like – Despite the fact that this particular intervention by Benjamin was in response to that electoral campaign and like the associated fuckery that was going on, it could have been any, you know, slightly controversial 
incident within a left or socialist organization you know like it wasn't oh, yeah. even about the specifics oh, yeah. because those particular dynamics are so recurrent on the left that despite being obviously of its time and place i imagine that, like that particular genre of criticism has significant lineage as well like you know i can't imagine that mark fisher intended for his vampire castle piece to sort of be this like long-term like resonant piece of like almost theory on the left it was just sort of like a an exploration of something that was going down in a particular time and place but um but it seems like these dynamics are yeah really really recurrent yeah and i wouldn't have had a reason to write it if it didn't seem to me like a pattern of behavior. If it was just a one-off thing, if it was just one weird DSA branch, I wouldn't have written it. But I, I saw that we had, we had made so much progress in our optimism about what we could do after Bernie Sanders, and, and we seemed to be slipping back into a kind of politics which can't win. And I got really concerned about that. And now, thankfully, there have been some electoral successes that have kicked some wind back in the sails of the, hey, let's actually try to do something movement. But there was a period there where it was looking really dead, where we were not winning any primary contests, where the most significant primary contest at that time was Don Blankenship in West Virginia, the guy who you know, killed killed those coal miners, you know, running a campaign on, on how Mitch McConnell is cocaine Mitch. And he's got all his China wives and all this. Well, I don't even remember exactly what the crazy shit that was coming out of his mouth. Now, you're right about that. And I think like, you know, in, in a sense, like I think the left and particularly the organized left and DSA and all and that that those that as the most significant representative of that organized left. I mean, we're fucking lucky that the Justice Dems and our revolution like helped uh, to organize Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign in the way that it did at the early phases. Because we didn't do that. They were the- we didn't do that. Um, they were their you know, foundational. Um, they were like cause. Yeah, they I mean, justice, justice her. Dems. Whatever you say about Justice Dems, that's ju- that's uh, the the Young Turks kind of political organization that they've they've leveraged formally, their power and their formally. connections. Um, it's no yeah, longer. formally. Yeah, but I mean, it's it, it comes from that wing of yeah, the Democratic yeah, yeah, Party, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is much more a wing of the party that's in, in, that's concerned with like progressive realignment. Uh, certainly more so than like a socialist. Uh, strategy, you know, for sure. Uh, they're more along the lines of like the 60s generation, I would say. And they, they want like a McGovern-esque uh, realignment um, in some senses uh, without, of course, all of the bullshit militant weathermen posturing. <laughs> uh, but 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 they have the the knowledge and the expertise and the, and the, the campaign staffers and the lawyers who know the, the campaign law and all that stuff who swooped in there and scooped up the extraordinarily talented Ocasio-Cortez and her her really impressive network of volunteers and grassroots organizers to produce this campaign. And so in a sense, I mean, you're absolutely right, but I would even double down on that, Benjamin, and say like, we got bailed out by the progressives. Because, oh, absolutely. Because the left, when you wrote this piece, I mean, it was dire. I mean, we were just destroying one another. I mean, there were arguments about abolishing prisons that just got uh, uh, conflated in, with with way too many different kinds of uh, moralistic claims about so quote unquote horizons and and you know people were slandered as social democrats and all it just re- a lot of ugliness that was unhinged and unconnected to the day to day struggle of winning power and, and, and achieving a socialist transition. So. In that sense, like we're, we, we are lucky. We're lucky that we got bailed out by the progressives. And we are not progressives. 
some good friends of the show call themselves progressives and I'll give them shit for it and they'll give me shit for it. And that's fine. That's just fun. But uh, they saved our asses here. I, I can't overemphasize that enough, which is why you know we need to be humble and aware of what our limitations are as a left right now if we want to be a viable independent force um, in, 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 in politics. So yeah, no, Amy, you're absolutely right to point to the fact that there's some universal themes here. I wish that you had written this piece like six years ago when I was in a couple dust-ups in my political organization, socialist organization at the time, <laughs> because <laughs> I identify with uh, the, your critique of this churchly left all too well. Um, so tell me a little bit about what the response was to this. Actually, you know, unpack the thesis a little bit more if you, if you don't mind, and then uh, yeah. tell me what the response was. Yeah, so the argument is that for a lot of people, Left-wing politics has replaced the role which churches and other civil society organizations used to play in people's lives. Like there's this book by Robert Putnam, by no means a socialist, but an interesting book called Bowling Alone about the decline of civil society organizations in America. Unions, as we know, have been declining for decades. Church membership, church participation has been declining for a long time, and especially among people with liberal to left-wing political orientations. And so what's happened is that a lot of people who are looking for this sense of community, who are looking for a purpose in life, who are looking for something that gives life meaning, uh, are unable to find this in the other places where it used to be found. And so they're theologizing politics. They're turning politics into a church type activity. And in the course of doing that, they practice it in a very different sort of way, which is not about winning power or using power to help people. It's about self-actualization. It's about personal happiness. It's about personal well-being. And so since the goal is not really a political goal, the behavior starts to look very non-political. But yet the language and the aesthetic and so on is, is all a political aesthetic. So it's really a, a theological phenomenon masquerading as a political phenomenon. Right. And we hinted at this pretty directly, I would say, more than hinted uh, at the A side a couple of days ago. Uh, about how this disposition, this way of seeing uh, one's relationship to one's politics is absolutely uh, crippling when it comes to leftists uh, working in coalition. Because if your understanding of politics is one where, 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 where you, you feel like it's an expression of your innermost being and the, tr the truth of yourself, right? And, and, and almost a, a in a religious sense, an expression of your soul, that's the nature of politics, then you certainly can't work side by side for common aims with people who don't share the same, uh, who don't recite the same catechisms as you do. So that Kantian like deontological um, logic is one that's like obviously incapacitating in terms of coalition building because it is so absolute in the way that it requires its adherence to think about things but it's also one that like really shapes individual political actions too like if you're seeing everything through this like expressionist lens you find yourself voting for completely unrealistic candidates um at the at the ballot box and saying that like oh no I couldn't I couldn't vote for Hillary because you know it just like it wouldn't express my true feelings it's like at what point is voting anything other than an instrumental act? Like you've made a really fundamental category error to be thinking about it in like 
any kind of expressionistic frame. And I think that that, like, deontological logic of a church is definitely one that, like, is manifesting in, like, certain other avenues as well. Yeah, and, and in lifestyle, especially in lifestyle. Now on the left, it's, it, and it's very neoliberal, it's very much this, this kind of hegemonic individualism, that the way that you express your political virtue is through consumption choices, what you buy. Things that have nothing to do with structures, nothing to do with systems. How you but no, your, your purity of intent will be expressed okay. by, oh, you buy organic, oh, you go to the gym, oh, you, whatever it might be. It's a very liberal way of thinking about politics. It's a very Clintonite way of thinking about politics. It's almost, Yeah. Well, I mean, I think like, you know, I have to tell this joke that Adolph Reed Jr. told on my show and pe- people who have heard that uh, will, will be very familiar, but uh, it's a hilarious and it's so apt. But Adolph goes on and he tells this really great story about there's this move, this movie that came out in the 70s. You know, movies used to be a lot more racy than they are now in some senses, uh, you know, before the whole sex panic that, that came in like in the 80s and 90s and the whole, you know, putting uh putting warning labels on rap music and all the Tipper Gore nonsense, you know, and the liberal uh, fainting couches across America. But in the seventies movies were quite racy. And there was this man, it was, I can't remember the name of the movie. Adolf would know clearly. There's this man, the main character and, and his love interest, I believe at one point was a, was a prostitute, a sex worker. And so anyway, they're, they're, they're about to, they're talking about her sexual promiscuity and he's a real prude. And, uh, so at one point the woman who plays the character, the prostitute, you know, looks at him and says, you know, the problem with you is that you care about sex so much that you won't have it with anyone. And I care about sex so little that I'll do it with anyone. And it's kind of like, you know, there, there's a, there's a a similar kind of underlying logic to that position, right? So if, if you, if you pretend that voting uh, is not the thing that changes society, but you privilege voting to be this like extreme manifestation of your inner being. And so you refuse to vote strategically or whatever. Um, you, you're, you're just like, uh, you know, the prostitute who, who will have it with anyone because they don't care about it at all. Um, it's, 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 it's an interesting little anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's illustrative in this case. Uh, those who proclaim to uh, to not quote unquote fetishize electoralism end up being uh, the, the biggest electoral fetishists because they really do believe that, that that their withholding of their vote means something, right? It has this intrinsic, uh, almost theological kind of uh, meaning to it. Um, so I'm sorry to be a lexical pedant, but like I even take issue with the phrase strategic voting. Like, in what universe is voting anything other than strategic? That's true. That is true. It's a false binary. I mean, you even have to go further and, and place, and place str- like the strategic under erasure because it's like, yeah, because oh, of it's, that's because what the it's fuck a, we're doing. Calling it strategic voting is like, to my mind, like conceding something to these fucking idiots, right? Um, and as I always say, if you want self-expression – Go join a pottery class. Right, it's go join one of those civil society organizations. That's where people used to do this. And now they don't have it, so they go to politics. Yeah, yeah. So you've unpacked the thesis quite well. Um, I think there are a number of little pull quotes that we could bring out of here. 
we want to sort of transcend the actual kind of uh, discussion. And I don't, you know, I said there's no point in rehashing the debate or in, in bringing up people's names into this because I'm sure they're ready to put this particular incident behind them and move on to more productive work. I mean, for one, Bread and Roses is now the leadership uh, slate of the East Bay DSA and they have bigger fish to fry. Um, but it really does get down to the meaning of politics and the, the essential nature of actually focusing on uh, uh, impactful and transformative actions um, as opposed to winning battles in our heads. You argue, this is, a, this is a long quote, but it's really great. You say, going to church isn't about changing the world with strategically effective political action. Going to church is about spiritual self-actualization. It's about becoming a good person together with other people who also want to be good people and who broadly share the same understanding of what it means to be, quote, good. In some churches, going to church is also about holding each other to account. When a member goes astray, you call that member out. Maybe you collectively shun or shame that person. When a member starts pushing the church to change, maybe you call that member a heretic. Maybe a heretic, rather. <laughs> maybe you try to get that person excommunicated or expelled from the congregation. You might do all of these things because in a church, the point is for everyone to pursue the same conception of the good together in the same way. And then you conclude that section. The left is not a church. The left is a political movement that is about winning power and using power to help people. So that's a really nice, I think, uh, summation of, of your point there, just to hammer that home for everyone who hasn't seen this piece just yet. How does this conflict with the way that you see socialist organizations? Because I want to put forward a thesis. This is risky as fuck, but I'm talking to the patrons. So don't at me. Actually, you know what? You're patrons. You can at me whenever you want. You can call my personal cell phone, uh, you know, if you want. Um, you can you can knock on my front door. I don't care. Uh, you earned it. But uh, I, I've been I've been venturing this little hypothesis, and I think Benjamin, maybe you, you caught it on Facebook, where I said, you know, the problem with our revolution and Justice Dems is that they are political organizations posing as activist organizations which might not be exactly accurate, but I think it's true. The problem with DSA is that it is an activist organization posing as a political organization. And what you need to do is you need both in equal measure, working together hand in hand in a very conscientious and conscious, uh, you know, reflective, self-reflective manner. What do you make of that? What are, I mean, is DSA an activist organization? What are some of the limitations therein? And what is it going to have to do to transcend those limitations of being an activist group and, and falling prey to some of these churchly tendencies? I think the thing about our revolution and the justice Dems is that they know exactly what they're there to do. They're there to capture the Democratic Party and push it in a more left-wing direction. Maybe not as far left as DSA would push it, but in a more left-wing direction. So they know what they're about. DSA has to have a big debate. Every branch has to have a big debate before they can endorse anybody. And since there's no centralized organization to make collective decisions on behalf of the whole DSA, every branch has to decide on its own one at a time, which means if you've got a big state like California with a whole bunch of DSA branches, the hopes of getting DSA aligned behind a particular Senate primary challenger or governor challenger in time to really make DSA a force in that campaign 
is limited. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, if just just a, a brief correction there, I, I can't vouch for every. Now, I do know that different Our Revolution chapters also have a similar um, a similar. Uh, structure when it comes to endorsing candidates where you have to, because I remember Ocasio-Cortez mentioned that she had to go into the Queens, our revolution to the Brooklyn, our revolution to get all of their individual endorsements. Uh, but I, but I, but I hear what Adam, you're saying in terms of, Adam, uh, yeah. Sorry. I just want to clarify. I'm pretty certain that that was actually DSA that she had to expend the most um, energy, like running around to different branches. Oh, it was, but she no. She mentioned on the dig actually that she had to that she went. Yeah, uh, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, she went to several. Okay, uh, so right, so that so that particular um, dynamic is in at play in both. Right, they're more fragmented, but 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 I just wanted to clarify that in case people are going to try to use that as a way to discard your entire argument because I don't. My my point is that I don't actually think that. I don't actually think that rebuts your argument because really what your point is to say that, yes, yeah, sure, maybe they have she has to go to these different Our Revolution chapters to get their endorsement. But the point is the stakes of that endorsement are pretty much the same across the board for Our Revolution because they're united in their purpose and their function. Yeah, you, you know when you're going to Our Revolution that everybody who's involved in Our Revolution thinks that electoralism and specifically primary challenges within the Democratic Party are a good strategy. When you go to a DSA meeting, you get people who aren't so sure about that. And we're going to want to fight you over that basic thing. Exactly. At our revolution, the question is just, okay, are you a Berniecrat or not? And if you are, you're good. And, and Bernie Sanders can straight up, he has so much cachet with our revolution. that If he sends out an email and says, hey, this person's a Berniecrat, they'll probably take his word for it. You don't have anybody in the DSA who has that kind of influence. You don't have any kind of agreement in the DSA over what it's actually meant to be doing. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the, this is the reason why, I mean, I didn't just sort of put out that paradox or that hypothetical uh, paradox uh, just to, just to bash on DSA. I mean, I think we could easily and equally in equal measure bash on our revolution and injustice Dems. I mean, for one, I don't think any of them have a a nearly uh, sophisticated enough understanding of capitalist, the capitalist capitalism, the capitalist state, the way that uh, institutions are battlegrounds for over class struggle and the various, you know, capital structures and historical transformations of all of these things that we talk about as as good Marxists. I don't think any of those people have any understanding of that. I mean, you take a guy like uh, Jank or Kyle Kulinski. I mean, they're very, you know, they're smart. Uh, principled political commentators, but you're not going to get a theory of like socialist transformation from those guys. And isn't it remarkable that you can have people who know less about politics, but are more effective and be more effective. Yes. and, And this is the thing, right? People think that class consciousness, people think that class consciousness is going to do the work for you, but oftentimes being more conscious makes you less effective because you're less able to talk to a wider array of people in a way that's persuasive to them. And because you're more skeptical of all the different strategic approaches you might take and you get paralyzed by it. It's almost like focusing on like materially getting shit done is more effective. (laughs) It almost is. It almost is. No, I think this is exactly the point. It's funny enough that uh, Jane McAlevey made on my show, you know, some months ago, almost a year ago now, where she's talking about like, you know, it's funny that all these brilliant Marxists like have a way, these scholars, and these academics, you know, have a way of being so goddamn smart and knowing way too much that they end up talking themselves out of believing that they can ever change anything. 
You know, if you, if you look at all of the theories of neoliberalism, you could classify and say like 95% of the theories of neoliberalism, these like heavy jargon laden theoretical scholarly debates are all just explaining about why we can't change society because neoliberalism is just too goddamn powerful. Um, it's explaining why we failed and why we will necessarily fail because, you know, because of all these pitfalls. Um, yeah, I mean, and, I think so that's kind of a reductionist framing. Like, you do need the academy to figure out, like, what the fuck is going on. Like, yeah, well, the yeah. academy is not an activist network. Like, of course, of course. Well, you know, I mean, you don't need to make that argument to us. You're talking to two PhD students. You're in graduate school, and Jane McAlevey just got a PhD herself. So, I mean, but but you know, it's 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 a, it's a good little Maoist self crit. You know, we can go into the woods together and flog ourselves and talk about our sins against the uh, talk about the base building. Talk about peace building. <laughs> yeah. That's another nut we haven't cracked yet. But anyway, uh, that's the thesis of the piece. You followed that up, uh, I don't know, what, about a week later, would you say, with a, with a rejoinder or something like that, with a, a part two, part do. Uh, that piece in your blog was called The Church Left is Proving My Point. <laughs> Which just was kind of like spiking the football and being a little extra uh, feisty there. Um, yeah, you always have to be feistier in the headlines. If you're not feisty enough in the headlines, nobody shares it. And you don't that's get right. More. That's right. It's yeah. like Kim Kardashian exposes her booty in epic own of Kanye. Click here to see more. Like you know, it's got to be really like. Uh, hey Adam, don't like, quit your day job. <laughs> I know that sucked. If anybody wants to write uh, headlines for me when we open up our YouTube channel, let me know. Kim's uh, butt so breaks internet. Kim's Dog. booty breaks the internet. Oh, that, that's been taken already. Uh, anyway, Benjamin Studebaker breaks the internet. So tell us about this piece. What led you to write it? Clearly, this was there was an interactive process, you might say, online uh, that motivated you. Yeah, yeah. This second piece, you know, I've got a Twitter so I can see mentions. I don't tweet a whole lot aside from just tweeting out my posts. But I do sometimes look at, at what people are saying about me or about the posts. Uh, and I stumbled upon this part of lefty Twitter that just had a, a very viscerally angry reaction to me. And they just called me every ism in the book, even including fascism. They called yeah, me a yeah, fascist. Yeah. It's great. That's just it's reflexive fun. these days, though. It's fine. Like, that, to me, fascist has no content. I mean, like, and as as a somebody who studies political theory, I know what I think fascism is. It's Carl Schmidt. What <laughs> I was doing was not Carl Schmidt. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, if anything, not. what they're doing is Carl Schmidt. Because, I mean, Schmidt's whole point about fascism, uh, Schmidt's whole, whole notion is that democracy is ruled by the people. The people are a group of friends. To have a group of friends, you need a group of enemies. So you have to decide what the boundaries are around the group of friends. That's your people. You have a state which represents that people. And then everybody else is an enemy. And then the people have a sovereign right to redefine their boundaries and kick people out for enemies and kill them or destroy them or, or whatever. And what the what this part of the left does is deeply, deeply Schmidtian. They're going around looking for people in the group of friends who aren't real friends, who need to be kicked out, made enemies, gone after and destroyed. And in this way, they're engaging in a very, very Schmidtian kind of politics. And this is where, you know, insofar as people say that the left is like like the right, or that there's some kind of horseshoe theory going on, this is where it comes from. It comes from this Schmidtian behavior that so many people on the left reflexively and readily engage in. 
Right, right. So tell me, tell tell us a little bit, a little bit about some of. I mean, you got some just really ridiculous pushback, uh, but it seems to me that you know when you say the church left is proving my point, it seems to me that uh, you know they they completely miss the argument and instead they they end up enacting the worst aspects of the critique that you that you levied just a couple of days earlier. Um, tell us about some of the more kind of concrete manifestations of that and and and, and what that means in terms. Of, of your argument and, and your reflections of it. Yeah, it, it immediately became about whether I was a good person, whether I was really left wing, whether every other position I've ever taken at any point in my life was a good position. And if even just one of them was wrong, if they could find one of them from any point in my yeah. life where I just right. screwed up or I was all up or I was immature or whatever, uh, they, would, they would try to use that to discredit everything I'd ever said and my standing as a, a person who is genuinely left wing. Uh, so it immediately became about, okay, this person has spoken some kind of heresy. We need to determine now whether this person is allowed to stay in the church or needs to be kicked out or needs to be shamed. What's the penalty? And it, it was completely focused around my individual virtue, whether I had it or I didn't. And it, it, it wasn't about structures. It wasn't about systems. It wasn't about you know, where did I come up with this idea? Why, why do I think that parts of the left are like this? What's giving me this idea? If it's a wrong idea, people should be able to tell me where my wrong perception is coming from in terms from of what it is about the environment that I'm misreading. It's coming from your deep-seated fascism. <laughs> right. It's always got to be Obviously. something wrong with me. It's got to be something yeah. wrong with the observer. Taking it back to the A side for a moment, which is why, you know, this is so uh, important and, and related in a direct way. It's like, so we talked about, like, so if Jeremy Corbyn's government fails to turn the tide of neoliberalism and austerity and class just domination uh, in, in the UK, uh, you know, he will post facto be determined to have always just been a sellout. And ah, he's only just now revealed to have been a non-virtuous person and a sellout, but that means that he therefore always was all along the way, right? And and that's why it failed. He just didn't have the cojones to go all the way, and he's always been a sellout. He was just a wolf in sheep's clothing before that, right? And and, and, and like you know, I mean, I just want to I want to reiterate. First of all, that's just a shitty way to treat people. I mean, we just we just need to say that from the get go. It's completely uh, antithetical to any kind of humane. Uh, socialism that that I want to be a part of or that I want to work towards in the world. That's that's just get that out of the way. Second of all, it's incredibly it's 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 just debilitating because it it doesn't allow it obscures the real fundamental structural dynamics that are at play in these types of transformations and shifts in the world. Right? It's not just bad people doing bad things and good people doing good things. I mean, as we all well know, it's idiotic to even say this, but good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. It's just idiotic. Really lacks any kind of substantive epistemology too. Like to suddenly out of nowhere start saying that like Jeremy Corbyn is the bad guy. Oh, look, we can now start looking retrospectively at a bunch of things he said or did that were clues that he's always kind of been this way. Like it's just a bunch of fairy tales. Like there's no methodology to it. And it's really essentialist. A person has some kind of, it's like they think a person has an essential nature. Either a person is essentially good or essentially bad. And it's no, it's no surprise that this group of people tends to have that essentialist mindset about 
groups, about class groups, about racial groups, gender groups. It's not groups. an essentialist mindset. It's an intersectional praxis. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. I won't have this bullshit on my show. Uh, no, My right socialism will be intersectional or it will be bullshit. Stop it. No, but I mean, we're making all these parallels. I mean, this essentialist framework uh, is, is, I mean, it's not surprising. And I mean, these people go to, you know, elite universities and they have their brains broken to believe that, you know, collectivities are uh, of a, an essentialized nature and therefore we can sort of read the world that way. And, the you know, my major takeaway from this piece, not only, I mean, I, I co-sign all of the interpersonal and organizational in-group, out-group dynamics because I've experienced all of it on my in my decade on the left in organizations and out of organizations as a podcaster on Twitter in the real world, all of the above. Um, but, but my critical takeaway, and I want to spend the rest of the B side really teasing out is the way in which this is a, a form of blindness that, that it, it doesn't a, the first thing, first things first is my insight coming out of reading your first piece was that people on the left are terrible readers. Their reading comprehension is shit. And I'll tell you why, because when you look at things moralistically and you're only trying to determine whether the author is good or bad, you just, you just miss arguments. You don't, you don't, you can't interpret the thesis. You can't judge their supporting evidence. You either read the headline and it makes you feel good. So you share it online or you read the headline and you heard that the author was a very bad person and you, and you, and you shitpost it. There's no critical. We're not, we're not encouraging and developing critical faculties of people on the left. And that is going to cripple our ability uh, to move forward and make persuasive arguments to the public. I think, Adam, I, can I just push back and reframe something a little bit there? I think um, I want to be really cautious and not um, make this like about a skill per se, i.e. reading comprehension. And I remember right. chatting yeah, with yeah, you yeah, about yeah, this right. at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, One impacts the other, right? The, the ideology. Sure, the, sure. No, no, but just bear impacts. with me a second. Yeah. It's also like if we're fundamentally operating on a affective playing um the way that we process information is qualitatively different right so if we already have a dog in a particular fight and we're reading an article through the prism of um sort of feeling defensive about our own um engagement in in whatever it is that the author is alluding to um we literally process it differently. Like our brains do a bunch of things like confirmation bias and availability bias. And like, we just have a whole bunch of like cognitive traps that mm -hmm, particularly mm -hmm. when we are um, in a heightened state of emotional arousal, um, we are even more likely to lapse into those um, cognitive biases. And I think part of the problem is that there's sort of been this like kind of, ironic um snarkiness about um sort of academic detachment and remove over the past few years and the idea that you would pass out something in kind of a detached um uninvested way is kind of nerdy and like you know it's not cool. Like it's cool to just like be all in, right? And everything has to have a villain or a hero. But mm -hmm. it's, it's I think, unfortunately, well, that's exactly it. And it becomes also like 
self-fulfilling in that your feelings about that piece that you read, rather, rather, the piece that you read, you experienced it um, differently than the person who read it through an oppositional frame. It's not that you've just got a lack of, you know, comprehension skill between two different readers. No, what you've done there is you've you've elucidated my 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 meaning when I said blindness. I mean, I I mean, Mm. your point's very well taken. I appreciate that you did that because when I say blindness, I mean that truly. It's like it's like you don't you just can't tell a blind person who's actually can't see. Uh, You know, you say, "Well, just open your eyes, dummy." Like, no, they actually can't see this thing. It's something about their sensory mechanisms don't allow them to see what should be right in front of them. They're not experiencing it in the same way as someone is who has the gift of sight. And you're exactly right to, 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 uh, to parse that out. It's like they, they literally do not see the same things because their perceptions and their, in their, their way of experiencing the text and the argument is going to be different at the outset. I mean, I've been there. I've been on the left long enough and I've made a lot of uh, you know, I've made a lot of progress and I've developed such, I think, in the right direction that uh, I've read things in the past that I hated. And I came back to it again and I was like, man, this is actually really good. I don't know how I ever read it in that way the first time around. Um, so anyway, your point's well taken. I mean, what, what do you yeah, mean? It's like that? that old expression. I know you believe you understand what you think I said, but what you heard is not what I meant. Yeah. Yeah, which makes it just makes argument on the left just so ungodly frustrating because you're right. It's not just a case of like, well, if you'd only just sit back and listen to what I'm saying, it's they fundamentally cannot. And so what I would like to do is make arguments that like, you know, I mean, fundamentally, we can't change these people making arguments because we've just said that. <laughs> but but I think what we can do is we can arm the people uh, who, who are already in broad agreement with us in terms, you know, of an affective disposition orientation. Uh, we can arm them to be more effective political actors in the world. And the rest of those people, honestly, the rest of the people, the ultras, the the, the shit posters, I don't know. They'll either get on board or they'll, or they'll, be, they'll be left behind. They'll be rendered, um, you know, um, just useless, you know, particularly yeah, in this moment. A- it's also, I think that that genre of engagement is also um, critically dependent on um, a sense of social cachet. Um, and if, you know, if the degree to which that type of stuff is rewarded um, decreases, then their propensity to engage in it will, or at least presumably should decrease as well. You know, like it, it's... We need to start rewarding that shitty behavior, basically. And it's it's difficult because people have embedded in their minds this notion that being a good person is about fighting the bad guys. And they don't know what it means to be a good person outside of finding bad guys to fight. There's something about that that really squicks me the wrong way because it's like there's something inherently narcissistic in thinking you're sufficiently able to like be a moral arbiter in that way I find that really disconcerting because I think anyone with even the slightest bit of humility knows that I like I'm I'm not sufficiently equipped to judge other people do you know what I mean like and so like comporting yourself in a way that's constantly looking for the heretic and you know hounding them out I just, I just don't really understand that inclination because it's so contingent upon this idea that, like, that you have the answers and you know how to decide these things. It's 
Yeah, it's really alien to me. But that's exactly the thing is that you're you're speaking as an individual. And I think we're getting to the heart of it. What, what Benjamin just put forward is that these are collective uh, manifestations and necessarily so. Oh, you know, when he writes, the left is not a church, a church is not an individual pursuit. If you are, then you're just a demigod and a weirdo and you know, you'll probably be institutionalized uh, for for hearing voices telling you that you're Jesus uh, or Muhammad or whoever, whatever, or the Buddha, uh, you know, um, the fact is that it's a collective impulse. So you as an individual on your own, you know, not, not living in an echo chamber are not going to be impacted by this because the point is, the point is group, is group formation. I mean, it's one of the fundamental uh, propositions, I mean, of, of sociology, which is that, um, you know, in group, in-group cohesiveness is uh, is sort of spurred on and, and furthered by out-group aggression. Um, so it's all about group formation, and that's the problem. Like, I just got to say, like, I just, I fucking hate echo chambers. I heard Anthony Bourdain say this in one of his final interviews, and he just, you know, he said something to the effect of, like, when I walk into a room and everybody agrees with one another, like, I just want to get the fuck out as fast as possible. And, and you know, and I think that's why. There's just this aversion to to this sycophantic uh, 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 group formation. But, 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 but that's why yeah, I sort of raised the provocation that DSA is necessarily an activist organization posing as a political one because it's a kind of a necessary evil in order to form an identity as a socialist organization. How do you avoid that tendency to identify as a collectivity as, as also then identifying the enemy and the outsider? I mean, it's, it's a tough challenge. Yeah, the, the in-group, out-group thing matches on very well to Carl Schmitt. And it speaks to a sense in which human beings have a fundamental inherent capacity for fascism and for fascist behavior. And it's not just that some of us are fascist and some of us aren't and some of us are anti and some of us are pro. It's that what? we all have this tendency to make those in-group, out-group distinctions and villainize the out and to get away from it, you have to get past this notion of individualism, this, this hegemonic individualism and the personal individuated notion of responsibility which comes out of it and understand that everyone is a produced subject. And that, that's the great insight of left-wing political thought. It's a great insight of Buddhism, this, this notion that we are all produced by what's around us by the conditions around us, by the ideas that are being thrown around because of the conditions that we've been exposed to. And once you realize that, then when you encounter someone who has a wrong idea, who has a wrong perception, you can be compassionate toward that person. And you can see yourself as, as maybe part of the environment that can help shift their perception of that, or the perceptions of other people who might see how you treat that person, even if you don't make any progress there. Maybe someone will see it and be positively affected. And we're not thinking about ourselves as produced subjects and, and therefore as yes. all yes. valuable, as Absolutely. all as every bit as valuable as the environments that have produced us. You come out of a capitalist society. You come out of a society with a particular conception of gender, a particular conception of race. That affects you. That affects everybody. But we need to be kind to each other because it isn't just a choice to pick the side of being affected or not being affected. We are all affected and we are all part of each other's healing. Yeah, I think um, something that I found particularly helpful in sort of thinking through some of the conceptual issues there is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with um, 
a philosopher named Miranda Fricker. She um she came up with this concept about ten years ago um, called epistemic injustice, and basically, sort of similar to economic distributional justice questions, she sort of said, actually, like within sort of social justice, um, there's sort of a realm of epistemic injustices that we all kind of um, that we tend to perpetrate or be subject to that I think are particularly apparent in left organizing. And I think they're also particularly apparent in our seeming steadfast, seemingly steadfast commitment to policing like word choice over, for instance, something that might actually, you know, materially improve people's lives. Like to my mind, like really recentering the idea of a leftist um orientation is one that recognizes that actually harping on people about like woke vernacular is to perpetrate a form of epistemic injustice like not everyone is clued in to the um, social networks that you are that like allow you to be acquainted with that particular vernacular and sort of assuming that everyone has access to that knowledge is a fundamentally anti-leftist way to engage with people so yeah educate yourself is the left's version of get a job (laughs) (laughs) yeah no that's true i mean if you're if you if you understand systemic causation and 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 agency deriving from systemic uh capacities and i mean this is really this is this this is subject formation this is subjectivization for the the theory nerds out there, as opposed to just subjects in the world acting freely. It's subjectivization understands that we are overdetermined in many senses, you know, in every sense by the structures that produce the the very forms and manifestations of our subjectivity. And and if you understand things in that way, the culture wars just don't make any fucking sense, right? Like just harping and harping about the bad guys and, uh, and, you know, and, ah, oh, this fucking guy did this thing the other day and isn't he a piece of trash and how, how pure is your hate today? And <laughs> yeah, I said it. Uh, some people get that. Some people won't like, that's just, uh, that's just idiotic. It's fucking moronic. It's LARPing and it no, doesn't do us any good. You can good. do what you want, but like. Well, you, do what you want in your spare time. Just understand that right now what you're doing is not politics. It's not politics. You're writing yeah. a so, fucking no, right. tabloid mail you're right. gossip. You're right. If you, we want to have some beers or some friends and just get this, get the shit off your chest about how much of a how, how much Trump is a fuckwit and Steven Pinker's a real asshole and all this kind of stuff. Like, Lord knows that is cathartic sometimes, but it's not politics. It's not. And and when you do it in public, everybody who is against the lab. Everybody who wants us to fail licks their chops and rips clips of your YouTube video and sticks it in front of their audience and goes, here's the left. The left thinks you're deplorable. The left thinks that you don't have any value. The left doesn't care about you. And that should never be the view that anyone has of the left. The left should care about every single person, every single one. George Chicariello Marr has done more to advance the cause of the far right. Uh, than 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 anyone any single person that I could ever possibly imagine because his dumbass all right post I me mean, he's a fucking tenured professor Shane, George if you're listening to this shit of course you're not but you know what fuck you all right George Chicarello Mar 
all right, has done more to harm the left uh, than any single individual that I can imagine even like name right now because his tweets are are just fodder for the xenophobic, race-conscious right wing who wants to convince working people that the left hates them, um, that the left does not care about them, that the left is not a place for them potentially to manifest uh, their uh, disapproval of the world in a much more rational and coherent and productive way. Yeah, and Schmidtianism reinforces Schmidtianism. When you say that white people or male people or white male people are the enemy, you are encouraging them to think of you as the enemy and vice versa. There's this cycle of enemy language which sharpens and hardens that sense on both sides that the other is an implacable enemy which must, which much, must be destroyed. So in oftentimes anti-fascist language, contributes so much to fascism and so much to fascist thinking. Yeah. I mean, it exists in, 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 in tension, in a dialectical tension. And the culture war is the dialectical totality, right? It's the manifestation of that dialectical tension that the, that the, one, the one side is in tension and relies and, and develops in contrast and alongside the other side. And when you heighten those tensions – um, you're ignoring the way that the entire culture war is furthered and heightened uh, in a way that is completely unproductive to the project of cohering a class conscious, right? We we're talking about how that's a very difficult and limited phrase. But the point is, I grew up with these people who are now alt, you know, on the alt-right or you know, sympathetic to, to white supremacist ideology. And they're no less workers than I am. In most cases, they're more of workers than I am. And why can't we tell them a better story? Why can't we give them a better narrative to understand their dissatisfaction with the world and the way that they have their boss's boot on the back of their fucking neck every day when they have to go to work? Why are we letting the Richard Spencers of the world give them a story? Uh, we should be the one so, giving them a story. It hurts us so much because we have now in the left a split between the rural white socialism and the urban person of color socialism. That maps onto this perception that, well, white people can't really be involved in their kind of socialism and people of color can't really be involved in their kind of socialism. We've allowed this false racial distinction to race permeate. Consciousness. Race consciousness is permeated on the left. We, and we've allowed it to, to poison the ability of the rural and urban left to cooperate together, where now there's a zero-sum game between making socialism fit the urban areas better or fit the rural areas better. And this is so destructive to our ability to compete nationally. And it's something that the liberal, uh, the neoliberal Democrats just allowed and embraced and McGovern allowed and embraced coming out of 72, this notion that, well, it's, it's the students and the people of color that you need and everybody else is an impediment. Everybody else is in the way. It was a decision to pick a side in that racial struggle that was going on in the Democratic Party in the 60s. And the move was not to pick a side. It was to find a way to put an end to that struggle. And to get everybody back on the same team again and to rebuild that New Deal coalition, which was so strong and so powerful, and then radicalize it and use it to do bigger and better things. But we, we've gotten so far away from that that we just keep splitting and splitting into ever smaller parts. And the small parts can never do what the New Deal coalition was able to do, much less things beyond that. Yeah, but the New Deal coalition was racist. <laughs> Yeah, it was also in the midst of Jim Check Crow, P.S. and mate. Check and mate, you racist fascist. 
and, and people always exist. forget about when they talk about the New Deal, they always forget about the Italian Americans and the Irish Americans and the Catholic Americans who, before the New Deal, they were always the, the people in the mob. They, they were the people you know, <laughs> running running the the prohibition smug, you know, the, the anti-prohibition booze smuggling rings. And the New Deal, because it did include them, lifted them up and made them part of mainstream society. And yeah, the New Deal failed to do that for people of color because the Democratic Party was too dependent on a block of voters in the South who were too racist. But a then block in trying of politicians to, and class uh, class uh, leaders who who were dependent on white supremacy as a form of economic uh, exploitation, uh, first and foremost, and primarily so. Um, and know. it was dealing with a Republican Party that was desperate to get back into power and was ready and willing to exploit that division in the Democratic Party and heighten it and intensify it. And, and what we need, you know, obviously we don't want to go back to having a racist left wing. Obviously, we don't. There's no, there's no more segregationists inside the Democratic Party, for fuck's sake. So, like, you talk about historical specificity. That's pretty fucking important. But see, now, you now know? for them, it maps on. Strom Thurmond is no longer inside the Democratic Party. That matters, right? That was but, a but great now, success. now for them, it maps onto the social issues. Now, if you're not going to put abolish the police and abolish ICE at the very front of your politics, then you're not really left wing and you're not really socialist. And so, well, this is just another way of me. isolating the red states socialists, the red state white and often white male socialists, and making them into trumpeteers because they're no, they don't get to have a home in the left. And so we've, yeah. we've got to find a way to, to include people of color in what we're doing in the same way that we included Italians and Irish Americans in what we were doing in the 30s without making the entire political narrative about that. If FDR had run saying, I'm running to help Italians and Irish people, because they're oppressed and they're the ones I care about. And if you're not Irish and you're not Italian, you need to think about what you've done. He would not have become president. Right. Well, we don't have to look far for examples, not just in our own time, but even back in those times. Look at look at A. Philip Randolph. A. Philip Randolph was was stridently opposed to this kind of like uh, a race consciousness that was that was that had formed uh, not only the pre-war but post-war that was not dealing with the fundamental concerns of actually existing black Americans, which is, you know, having good jobs with good unions, uh, you know, not readily exploited and, and taken advantage of by their bosses and their communities. Um, whereas these kind of uh, cut and paste civil rights issues were promising people, uh, you know, much more superficial rights. Uh, a, a. Philip Randolph was a strident uh, supporter of that. You can see Martin Luther King's later struggles as a, as a, as a socialist, as a democratic socialist, were far more in line with that uh, kind of uh, universalist approach. No matter what color your fucking skin is, if you're in the working class, you've got to work for a living. You've got to go and work for a boss who exploits the shit out of you and has no uh, responsibility for your well-being at all. Doesn't care, is not obligated to give a shit if you live or die. And why is it that we think that the way to win people of color to the left is to crib from liberal Clintonite campaigns and take this status-oriented, language-oriented politics, which has nothing to do with putting a single dollar in the pocket of a single person? Why is it that that's what it means to care about people of color in the left? Because right now? I think for a lot of them, they implicitly endorse 
the hierarchical understanding of different minority groups, but they feel guilty about it and they feel that the righteous thing to do is be super woke in their language and super woke in, like, the policies that they allegedly support, um, as long as they're not actually having to cash the checks that they're writing. Like, the whole thing to me is vacuous as fuck. Like, and, and it's disingenuous too. Like, to my mind, anyone who... Like, there was a huge number of people who, like, genuinely thought that Hillary's 2016 campaign was the most substantively oriented towards African-Americans. Like, and they will defend... No, no, but they will defend that to the hill. Like, to my mind, like, I actually don't even care what the fuck her campaign, like, contained. The very idea that she was, like, a priori, like, the, the African-American candidate du jour, this bitch had called African-American kids super predators and written in 1997 how she had African-Americans... Labor. Amy, your mic is lava. Don't touch okay, it. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I bust my ass to bring listeners the best, the best audio quality on the scene. Sorry, I'm you're sitting over on my here, hands. I'm and you're over here hands. fucking with your mic stand and garbling the gold that's pouring out of your mouth. No, you're right. Go on about the super predators. Yeah, so this bitch has called African-American kids super predators. And written a chapter about her hand-wringing over having African-American slave labor, like, in the mid to late 90s. And, like, that was that was not something that was in any way relevant. Like, oh, and her role whole, in welfare reform was not whole, oh, considered yeah, by yeah, yeah. to be in any way relevant. But, like, the just the degree to which it is, like, performative all the way down is kind of amazing to me and like the thing is that that type of logic and disposition um like I think it would be foolish to think that just because you know a significant number of kids will orient themselves like in terms of nomenclature as like more socialist and will like join the DSA like to think that those particular dispositions um haven't influenced the way they think and feel and behave um, implicitly is, I think, um, kind of naive. Like, and uh, I'm and, not and you're saying telling this us, in... You're, you're, you're telling the, the same story of what happened in the neoliberal third wave, uh, third way Clintonite, Blairite coalition. You had people initially coming in saying, oh, you know, we can make left-wing politics electable again. And then raising an entire generation of people under that kind of left-wing politics who didn't see it as a strategy, but just saw it as what left-wing politics was. Mm. So even if you go, okay, we're going to get people of color by doing liberal things, what you do is you turn the movement into a liberal movement. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's just like you see every, every person and you know, some people I consider m- more or less good who are making good in terms of like, I, I agree with their arguments, not good people. I agree with their arguments and their assessments of the, of the world and politics in general. They're, they're good in that regard. But I hear, sometimes I hear them come on and they're say, and they'll say something like, well, you know, Bernie, 
he wasn't really great with black voters at first, but then he really got his act together. Like, I, 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 I mean, what the fuck? What does that mean? What does that mean? What it means is that they they managed to force Bernie Sanders to say on national television that if you're white, you don't know what it means to be poor. They managed to extract that extremely damaging soundbite from him as, you know, bloodletting to prove his bona fides. Yeah, you have to you have to flog yourself uh, in order to prove that you actually care about the poor black folks when. Poor black folks have more in common with poor white folks than any other, you know, grouping on the country. And so and what? Flogging his elites- entire rural support base in the process. And as we all know, all you really need to do to impress African American voters, because they are substantive and fully actualized human beings that you yeah. believe are equal to you. Surprise. Is, um, Carry hot sauce in your hand. <laughs> yeah, that's in no way pandering at all. And I think like the dynamics no. here, like this is where I have Adolph Reed Jr. stuck in my head. And that's a damn good thing to have, I think, in this case where it's like, all right, let's ask yourself, who are these people? Not everyone, because there's some good friends of the show and people I admire who, who have said this. And I, I would quarrel with them in a sense. I think I know what they mean. What they mean is that he wasn't playing the game hard enough. And I don't mean extracting the concessions. No, I mean, no, he wasn't going yeah. to the right movers and shakers to try to get them on side. And maybe he wasn't, he wasn't neutralizing maybe he was. his opponent's weaponized yeah. version of that. Yeah, maybe. And maybe he's gotten more savvy at that. So maybe that's that's the more constructive and sophisticated take on that on that particular stance. Maybe so we as a movement need to take over part of that and start yes, um, yes. changing the way people think about things and emphasizing the idea of a universalist conception of what we want. But this is where like Adolf Reed's criticism of black leadership really comes in handy. And if we believe that black leadership is uh, somehow special or different than any other form of leadership, that they're impelled, um, compelled, motivated by other concerns that any other more differently than any other form of leadership might be compelled by, then you might think this is complete, uh, completely out of line. But if you actually think that people who have more melanin in their skin are just like every fucking body else, you won't be offended by what I'm about to say. Which is to say that has anyone ever considered that those black leaders who are getting on the microphone on their podcast and their radio shows and everywhere else when they're interviewed and they're saying, you know, Bernie Sanders wasn't really uh, touching, touching, uh, you know, uh, striking a chord with the black uh, population in America, but he's really improved on that. What they mean is that. I am now an authorized commentator and spokesperson for black America. Listen to me, build my social capital, take my word for it. I'm the expert. I mean, why, why, why can't we just see that loudly and clearly? I mean, that's, that's just the way that we assess a spokesperson in the world. We're critical of spokespeople in the world and we rightly should be like, what are their motivations? Uh, are they real, true representatives of this body? Is uh, J.D. Vance a real representative of rural white America? Like, fuck no, he isn't. And we can say that. So what is he doing? He's on a grift. How come we can't say that about certain commentators in the POC realm? Well, and here, here I, I, I want to believe that up, they're uh, special, that they're different, that they have black magic. I mean, that's racist as fuck. Anyway, I'm, I'm on a rant. I'll shut up now. I mean, like, <laughs> it, it kind of reminds me of of what Kanye West said about how we're in a mental prison and how they think that they're entitled to our vote and we don't do anything and they don't do anything for us. 
the trouble is that because there's no one out there, no one out there for Kanye West to read or to listen to on YouTube expressing that view from a left perspective, he goes and listens to Candace Owens. And that's that's a vulnerability that we have left wide fucking open. Totally, totally. This is the guy who said that George Bush doesn't care about black people. And he ends up in Candace Owens land because we're not trying. Right on. And moreover, that uh, poor black folks, uh, poor black kids in particular across the country are looking to a billionaire or gazillionaire and not a billionaire, a multimillionaire like Kanye West for their political lead instead of, you know, I don't know, some organic, uh, you know, uh, uh, working class figure uh, like a Fred Hampton or somebody of his ilk. You know, that's very telling as well. The left has failed to produce uh, principled working class oriented spokespeople uh, that actually have uh, much of a voice uh, because uh, the political sphere in the, in, in the land of liberalism is, is defined and run by foundations and NGOs. And in that world, DeRay McKesson reigns supreme. And DeRay McKesson does not have a narrative that's going to capture the real uh, uh, struggles of young black kids in this country. They're going to look to Kanye instead. I mean, but he is a never nude. So there's that. <laughs> I didn't DeRay's a never nude I didn't know this he showers in his Patagonia vest oh he I'm showers sure in his it. Patagonia vest <laughs> people who don't watch Arrested Development will not appreciate that riff all right Anyway, all right, so now that we've talked about Arrested Development and the problematic nature of uh, George Sr., it's probably time to cut it. We were over an hour. Uh, we've laid down a number of diss tracks. I've got heated a couple of times throughout this episode. I promised to save the fieriest of the hot takes for the patrons, and I think we were pretty fucking successful at doing that today, folks, don't you think? Wouldn't you agree? The fire this time. The fire this time. See what time. I did there? The fire. Callbacks. Yeah, I did. I did. Ah. Call it back. Call it back. Benjamin Studebaker, I uh, really appreciate your work. I've enjoyed a lot of it. And, um, you know, I don't think you're a very bad person. You're, 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 you're quite a swell fellow in my book, Ben. Oh, thank you. I'm glad that I am officially accepted into the church. Yeah. Uh, you're, you, you are welcome into my uh, splitter uh, church. Um, and uh, there's Kool-Aid every Sunday as soon as you walk in the door. Just, ta- just hang a left and drink the Kool-Aid. Uh, anyway, all right. <laughs> Benjamin Studebaker, thanks for joining. We're going to put all of your blog pieces in the show notes for the patrons to lap up like thirsty animals, like the thirsty animals that they are. <laughs> You've uh, had the weirdest, weirdest and, metaphors uh, today. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I press the record button and things start flying out of my mouth that I've never said before in my entire life. It's just, it's a, it's a sickness. It's a disease. Anyway, so let's go ahead and sign off, Ben. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, for sure. Let's make this a regular thing. I've really enjoyed this and I'd uh, like to have you back on in the coming months as a, as a regular contributor. So thanks again for coming on the Dead Punch You can today. be our ongoing pastor. Yeah, yeah. Pastor Ben. Pastor <laughs> Benjamin Studebaker. Spirit, spiritual advisor. <laughs> spiritual advisor to Dead Punch Society. Thanks for uh, blessing us uh, with your holy word. Well, thanks for having me. It was delightful and I'd love to do it again. Amen. Amen. <laughs> baby, baby. Oh, oh. Listen to the peace side.